0: I'm sure some of you realize you've just sung the entire 51st Psalm in words slightly adapted, of course, for song from the biblical text. I'd ask you to turn to Psalm 51 to follow with me today as we look once more at another classic psalm here in this summer season. I hope to consider this psalm both today and next Sunday on Communion Sunday and I think you'll see one certainly quite appropriate to lead us to a communion celebration, the great psalm of repentance, certainly the classic psalm about that subject in all of the Bible. You have sung all of the words of it in the hymn we just finished, but I'm going to read just the first nine verses and try to consider that much, and then hopefully pick it up at verse 10 next Sunday. So listen once more to a reiteration of that Word of God, Psalm 51, 1 through 9. "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions.'" and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place." Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. This is the Word of God. Repentance is something absolutely vital in every person's approach to God. On this subject, the Scripture gives us a study in contrasts between how not to repent versus a God-approved repentance in the examples of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. In 1 Samuel 15, you can read about King Saul, who was a rather proud, confident leader, self-willed, and he was caught in a particular and blatant disobedience to God. When God's prophet Samuel came and confronted Saul with what he had done, Saul at first said he was innocent. He hadn't done it. But then in the face of unavoidable evidence, he said, well, maybe he had disobeyed after all. But he could say it wasn't such a big deal, and he rather proudly blamed others, and he postured, and he bargained until his repentance was a shallow and very defensive farce, something God could not accept. Then we have King David, and his repentance is vividly exhibited in what we've just read in the 51st Psalm. Now, this is the man after God's own heart, who, at least in outward terms, whose sin was far more grievous and harmful and radical than what Saul did, you might say, anyway, as we measure things. And David, having sinned rather brazenly, thought for a while that his crimes might be concealed. But then once more, along came a prophet, this time Nathan. And Nathan rather bluntly exposed him. You, O king, are the man. When that happened, David did not quibble. He did not pass the buck. He did not bargain. There was no attempt for him to save face. Instead, This king, whose heart was indeed after God's own, fell down on his face and groaned in a depth of repentance, which God's word here offers to us as the premier example of true sorrow for personal sin. And because of the difference in their repentance, David received God's forgiveness, Saul did not. And these two men are intended as examples so that we might know how to sincerely and effectually say the words, Have mercy on me, O God. You see, among the historic outpourings of any human heart that knows it is in the midst of a personal failure, Psalm 51 from David constitutes the archetype, the pattern, the master pattern for how to claim the only mercy that will possibly rescue us. Now, this epic confession, we're told usually, depending on what version of the Bible you have, you may have a little notation after the number of the psalm that mine says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. That notation has been carried in, Editions of the Bible since this psalm has been with us, we think quite surely, that's correct that this does relate to those events in 2 Samuel 11, when David lusted after and then took to himself another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then the king connived of how to put the innocent husband Uriah, the loyal soldier, in a place in battle where he would be killed and eliminated from the whole equation. Now, what we learn here in large measure is that a truly penitent believer never belittles his wrong. He not only does not belittle it, but he sees it as an attack on God most high and is ready to say, God, you would be just if you just forgot about me and never spoke to me or dealt with me ever again. And yet this same guilty, repentant man was amazed to find that instead of blotting him out, God blots out the sin under his wonderful mercy, which we know in terms of knowing what came after, that that is something fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, biblical repentance like that of David is an essential channel for us today, an essential way to Approach the gracious salvation of God. Repentance and faith are always two sides of a coin. How do you come to Christ? Well, people will say, Well, believe in Him and confess His name, but repentance and faith are always right there together, not just believing in Christ, but repenting and seeing yourself as undeserving of His mercy. So we want to strive to not only understand, but imitate this wonderful prayer of David. I'm going to deal, as I said, with just the first nine verses today, hoping to conclude it next Sunday. And I'm just asking three questions of the text. Here they are. I'm going to ask, what is the core problem here? I'm going to ask, to whom did David appeal for help? And thirdly, what is the divine solution that is suited to this need? Well, first of all, what is the core problem? I'm not going to dwell on or develop the story of the circumstances of what David did. If you have any Bible familiarity, you know something about David's lusting after Bathsheba, the commitment of adultery, the abuse of power, the deceit, the murder. David didn't take a knife in his hand and go kill Uriah, but he might as well have. One commentator says he broke at least five of God's Ten Commandments in the course of this, maybe more. David's fall from God's grace wasn't done by a half measure. It wasn't, you know, just sort of sliding into something that you might call a little sin, a little minor thing. It was more like a head-first suicidal dive off a cliff. And yet the ruinous sins that he did here show us that God indeed can forgive the blackest record of any person when repentance is authentic. And so notice as we try to analyze the problem, verse 3, as a guilty king says, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Well, it wasn't at first. You know, at first what he was doing seemed enticing. It seemed glamorous. It seemed excusable. He thought, why, I'm the king. And here's a beautiful woman. And the husband isn't here, so who's going to be harmed by an hour of secret pleasure? And then when it got deeper and he had to have manipulations regarding how to deal with Uriah and get him out of the way, the king could still sort of rationalize to himself, well, you know, every soldier, every sergeant in the army in a battle is, is already in danger, so Uriah could, could be killed, who knows? Uh, all I'm going to do is adjust the percentages relating to his death. But now, in this hour that he writes and prays and cries out, the charm, the allure, the glamour of sin is gone completely, and in place of it are ashes and misery and a knowledge that will not go away. You see, that's one of our problems with confessing sin in our lives. It probably isn't something as dramatic as David for most of us. But whatever it is, we don't repent all that often because we don't really interpret what we've done as being something grievously sinful. We can always name it something else. Well, you know, a moment of weakness. I was tired, and I've been working really hard lately. Family circumstances are tough. And we can take sin and sort of sand off its rough edges and its burrs and, until it's smooth, and we can then name it something else. Or we can tell ourselves, oh, I, yes, well, if somebody else did that, I'd be shocked, but you have to understand, I'm kind of a special case. Well, all that kind of thinking, that cavalier attitude, it ended for David under a piercing conviction given him by the Spirit of God. And now I I feel like his faults were, for him, the experience of them was like wearing a necklace of live scorpions. It was like having a, 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 a video playing inside his head that would never stop. It just played over and over and over as the Spirit of God reminded him, my sin is ever in front of me, waking and sleeping. And you see, it takes God's estimate of our wrongdoing for us to begin to say for the first time, I am the chief of sinners, not somebody else, me. It's God who sponsors this kind of conviction. We flee from the idea of being miserable <laughs> over sin, but misery is actually a blessed first step that God gives us to begin recovery from our sin with a painful self-awareness. That's the first sign that the Holy Spirit is at work because the person not under any conviction, blithe and carefree and just going their own way, saying it doesn't matter, is also outside of any place of rescue John Calvin said we will never seriously apply to God for pardon until we obtain such a view of our sins as inspires in us a godly fear. Viewed by a mere human estimate, our sin is always easy to dismiss. Somebody else's is always worse. But once God points it out, it almost feels like you're walking around every day with it emblazoned on your forehead and you feel like everybody is reading what you know to be true about yourself. Now, in this complete knowledge of his sin being ever before him as a core problem, David had to define it, and it's interesting that he didn't just use one word for sin here. He used three different words. The whole arsenal, in fact, of the Bible's Hebrew words for sin are used in verses 1 and 2. He called it transgression that means crossing a boundary. That means God has put some kind of boundary or limit on how we should live and what we should not do, and and we have persistently and deliberately crossed it. It's also called trespass in the Scripture. There's another word here, the word iniquity. We, We just think maybe these are just, you know, he's speaking in poetry, so he needs lots of words. Well, they each have a shade of meaning. The word iniquity has more the sense of perversion, taking something which was good and straight and true and bending it, warping it. Have you ever, men, if you're any kind of a carpenter, you've gone to the lumber yard to get some two-by-fours, maybe to build a partition, and I hope you know that not all two-by-fours are created equal, you know? You get those real cheap ones that they sell for $1.99, and what you need to do is sight down along it, and I've sighted along two-by-fours that went, Like, you couldn't in any way make a straight wall out of it. Well, that's iniquity. That which is bent, warped, perverted from what God wants. Adultery is an iniquity because it is a perversion of God's ideal for sexuality within marriage. And then we have the word sin, the simple word, the short one, which You've probably heard its classic definition many times. It comes from the sport of archery, shooting an arrow that misses the mark. That's sin. Aiming at something but never hitting it, going wide, falling short, going over the target. And you see, human sin is always taking aim at what, what's the target that human sin aims at? Why, usually it's happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment. Does sin ever hit that target? No. No. You would think it would. You know, you have the bow in your hand and the arrow, and you say, I'm going to just pull this back, and I'm going to get some happiness. And the arrow goes, and you don't end up happy. You end up miserable. Transgression, iniquity, sin. Now, these things not only describe the acts that, that David did, he goes deeper into this core problem in verses 5 and 6 in a, another aspect of it he, when he says this, "'Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, for you desire truth in the inward parts.'" In the old days, a, a, a terrible and, and really wrong interpretation of those words was made when people interpreted the idea that, that married sexual intercourse was sinful, That David was saying the the act of my mother and father that conceived me was a sinful act. That is not what this text is saying. No way. He's saying, and the NIV correctly translates it, I believe. From the time my mother conceived me, I was a sinner. It's me. I. It's, It's not just the fact that I have done sins, but I'm a sinner. You know, I would make a, a side comment here for a moment that here's one of the problems I think that Roman Catholicism has, that it does not at least correctly show its people in, in the whole act of confession and contrition and, you know, various acts. You go and say a certain Our Father or Hail Mary or something, and you, you confess, Father, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Okay, do this, and it'll take care of it. In other words, deal with the acts of sin. But there's a tendency, at least there, to take away the emphasis on the condition of the fact that we are natural-born sinners, deeply died all the way through. It's not just surface things that we do. It's who we are. Now, theologically, the Bible calls this the doctrine of original sin, the idea that Adam and Eve did something that the whole human race has kept on doing ever since then. And it's not just that they are to be blamed because they did something and we should be mad at them because we wouldn't have done it if we were in their place. The whole point is we would have done it, and we do it anyway. We're all caught in this fall, as the Bible calls it, from sin. They spoke the first lines in the drama, but we've been speaking the same lines ever since. You might compare it to the idea if you own some property here in the county with a little stream on it. Uh, we call it a run, I guess, not a creek. They're usually called a run around here. And maybe you have a little creek in your, your yard and, and you realize, you test the water and you look at it, it smells bad. And you say, hey, this, this little run is, is very polluted. What's wrong here? And you start to trace the problem. You go on up the creek and you go maybe 10 miles to find where it originates in some source. And what you find is that the source is polluted. It's not just your little section that has a problem to be solved. You can't solve that problem until you get back to the source and clean that up because the whole stream is fouled with some kind of toxin. Is this the realization you have about yourself? That it's not just individual acts you commit that are displeasing to God. Yes, those are, have to be recognized, of course. But that you have a condition born upon you from birth it has to be dealt with. Now, notice what David did not do here. You know, it would have been easy for him to say, from sin, you know, in sin I was born. This is my genes, in other words. It's not just environment. It's, it's genetic. And he could have so easily said what? Well, he could have said, hey, God, you have to understand, you know, uh, this is the way I am. can't do anything about it. I can't help it. But that isn't what he did. Acknowledging that sin was in his very nature caused him to plead for a solution that would go deep, all the way into his inward nature, so that righteousness and cleanliness would come from within. That's the core problem recognized. Well, secondly, then, as God convicts you and me about the depth of our problem, not just individual sins, but the source of them we follow David and ask another question, to whom then does the sinner appeal for this problem? Well, that's a pretty obvious answer in this psalm. Verse 4, David told the Lord God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. The Lord, the holy God, is the offended party, and he's the one who must be addressed. You know, way back in the end of Genesis, Joseph, son of Jacob, got it right in Genesis 39, verse 9, where he was in a predicament of being tempted by the wife of Potiphar. She was trying to seduce him as an attractive young man, and Joseph resisted it. And as he fled from her, he said, how could I do such a wicked thing against my God. You see Joseph's consistent understanding? It was God who had prohibited this thing. The line was drawn, and he knew that he was attacking the standards of God if he would cross that line. How many of us present here have a swift response of our biblically educated conscience to everyday evil and temptation like that? At the business, in the course of a transaction with somebody, within the family, in the way you talk to someone, or, or the many different ways that we can be tempted to just go astray a little bit. How many of us stop and say, how could I do such a thing against my God? You know what people say instead? They say, well, listen, here's how it works. Morally, I can do whatever I want. How many times have you heard this? as long as nobody gets hurt. And people are pretty sure they're going through life not hurting anybody. But the biblical prescription is that any time you disobey the will of God, somebody does get hurt. Even if you don't see it immediately, people get hurt. Our bodies don't even strictly belong to us to do with as we please. God made them. He governs them. His standards are important. Our tongues belong to God and need to honor Him. And our actions with our bodies and our tongues send ripple effects out into the people we're related to every day, and they do affect other people. Now, of course, David had harmed Bathsheba. He had certainly harmed Uriah. He had harmed many people in his kingdom. Some people say, how could he say against, you know, you're the one I've offended God? Well, he was talking about the preeminent first issues here. He didn't say, I didn't hurt anybody else, but he said, you're the one I have to deal with, first of all. Because if I didn't know there was this holy God who had revealed his law, I wouldn't know what sin is. But I do know this God, and he has revealed his law. And now that I know what sin is, I am stricken down by it. Well, what did David do here exactly in in going to God? He presented what might be called, in legal terms, a character plea. Now, one version of this happens in a court when the attorney stands up defending his client, and he says, Judge, look, uh, I ask you, judge to, and jury, to please consider my client's 30-year background as an upstanding citizen. Why, he's been a, a Boy Scout leader. Uh, he's been president of the Kiwanis. He's been a leader in the business community. And so this one slip-up in his life has to be balanced against all the good he has done. That's a character plea. But is that the character plea David used? You see that it is not. He did not plead his character at all, did he? The 51st Psalm opens with a plea that is based on God's character. God, you're the one I offended, and now... All I can do is come and plead who you are. And here's what I know about you. You have unfailing love. You have great compassion. According to these things that are yours, I plead, I throw myself on the mercy of your court. Have mercy on me according to who you are. Of all the many attributes we can know about God, his power, his knowledge, his wisdom, his faithfulness, it's his mercy that a sinner needs to know. You know what mercy is, don't you? It means not receiving punishment you justly deserve to receive. David didn't come and say, be just to me, O God. All I want is my day of justice. How often people say that today, you know, just want a little justice here. David knew if he got justice, he was finished. So he asked to be treated in terms of God's unfailing covenant pledges that he was a merciful God. Back in Exodus 33, we read the word of God long ago when he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. I can do it. I can choose to do this. But it needs to be claimed, is the Bible's message. It isn't automatic. It needs to be claimed by the offending party. If you ever find yourself in a character plea, and I dare say every one of us has been there in some manner, praying or maybe even just thinking before God, well, God, you know, I, I've been good most of the time. <laughs> you re- Now, This big lie I've just gotten caught in. You know I'm usually a truthful person. I I don't do this very often, so this is a real, you know, out of the ordinary. And God, just clap your hand over your mouth, will you? I won't do it because of my microphone, but clap your hand over your mouth when you start talking that way. Please plead for mercy. Mercy on the basis of God's character and what he has done for you in Christ because your character is the problem not the solution i have a pastor friend who whenever he writes me a note or a letter he's had this habit i think for many years has a characteristic way of signing off instead of saying sincerely yours or in christ or something this this friend always writes under the mercy I love that reminder that his letters bring me. We are under the mercy of Christ our God. His character alone is our refuge. Thirdly, then today, if we know who to appeal to and what aspect of his character to appeal to, consider this last question. What divine action will be best suited to the sinner's need? There are two things David asks for in this psalm in verses 1 and 2. The first is, Blot out my transgression. Most of the commentators believe he's asking here for a change in the legal record. The word means to literally just wipe the record off, erase it, as if it was never there. There's a lot we could say about this, but of course, if you're at all theologically sensitive, this sounds a lot like justification by God's grace, through faith in Christ, that ends up being just as if I'd never sinned, doesn't it? Later in the Bible's development of who the God of salvation is, we find his promise in Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. I can do this, God says. You, you, know, you forget everything except the things you want to forget and those you remember. Isn't that the way our memory works? God says, "I can forget sin. I can blot the record clean. I can insert a whole new page in place of the record written against you in the book of life. Blot out my transgression." The second thing David asks for is actually more personal and and individual. When he prays, "Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin." He repeats it again in verse 7 with a further elaboration when he says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Among those many advertising slogans that tend to sort of stay around because they're so clever was the one of quite a few years ago when a laundry detergent, I guess it was, advertised that it would get away, ring around the collar. Remember that? Well, what will remove ring around the soul? You see, God has blotted the record out. He has given us a clean record for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. He said, there's a new page inserted. But you see, we still have the personal problem, the lingering problem of dirt on us. Call it guilt. Call it shame. We feel dirty from our sin, even if we can believe that God has blotted it out. How will we be washed? Well, there are ways people seek to do this. I think about the process of how washing clothes has become so relative. I'll never say it's easy. I don't do it. So something I don't do, I shouldn't pronounce easy. But it's a lot easier than it once was. You read about pioneer days. How did did the settlers in their log cabins out in the wilderness wash clothes? Well, first of all, before they even approached wash day, they had to make soap. How do you make soap? Well, you take ashes and all kinds of stuff and you make lye somehow. You boil it. I don't know the recipe, but I know it was an ugly, nasty business to make the soap. And then you had soap. Now you took the clothes and you went down to the creek where there were some rocks and you put this caustic soap on it and you rubbed it in hard and then you rubbed the clothes on the rock and hopefully you didn't wear a hole in the clothes while you were trying to clean them. And after a back-breaking day of work, you got them a little bit cleaner. They, they smelled better, but there probably was dirt still in them because lacking our modern detergents and stain removers and dry cleaning, some of that hard cleaning never got the job done. Well, that's a lot like what some people try to do in cleaning themselves up in some manner or other of personal reform. I will do better. I just won't do that anymore. I, it's been pointed out to me, all right, I'm going to do better I'll clean myself up, but somehow we don't end up clean. And what David was saying here was, Lord, I come to you for the action best suited to my need. In in a word that isn't even a word, David was saying, Lord, unsin me. Take the sin away. Remove both its legal penalty and its personal grimy effects. Only you can do this. I can't do it. I remember vividly a seminary friend of mine more than 30 years ago who was at the seminary from India. The first semester in seminary, he was in New England, never having been in the United States before. I was with him at the lunch table on a December day when it began to snow outside the window. He had never seen it. And his whole face was wreathed with a smile. He said, oh, that's what snow looks like. Why, it's beautiful. David said, that's what I want. That delightful cleanness, whiter than snow. Before we leave this, this text for today, there's a last thing to see here, and I think it's very important. The details of God's Word are important. Why does David say this strange phrase, purge me, cleanse me with hyssop? and then I will be clean. What is hyssop? Well, it was a plant, and it's a plant with a peculiar significance. If you would look at Exodus chapter 12, you find God giving instructions for the Passover meal in Israel. He told the the fathers of Israel what to do, to kill a Passover lamb, to roast it, prepare it for eating, But before they would eat it, they were to take the blood of the lamb as it had been shed, and they were to go out and find a stalk of the hyssop plant. I don't know what this plant looked like. I've never seen it. But it was some kind of a fibrous plant that had sponge-like qualities. And you were to take a stalk of it in the instruction of Exodus 12, dip it in the blood, and use this hyssop plant like a paintbrush to put the blood on the doorpost of the house. So the angel of death would pass over, and it signified, of course, God's salvation for that faithful home. Are the details of God's Word important? David was a prophet here. Purge me with hyssop. Paint blood upon me, Lord, because that's how I'll be clean. And Isaiah 118 promises, although your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. And there's a prophetic line from this verse in Psalm 51 that goes right to the hill of Calvary where the blood of Jesus Christ was shed that would effectually cleanse us and give us the result of an authentic repentance. Psalm 51 is the repentance handbook, and it leads to the cross. Now, to some people, David's David's naked honesty here might seem drastic. Well, his sin was drastic, so his honesty needed to be drastic. But it's nothing less than what's required for you. You have to take ownership of your sin. No excuses. No passing of blame. No, I'm born that way. Nor will it work for you to say, oh, thanks, God, for pointing it out. I'll do better. That's not good either. You must throw yourself on the mercy of the court, the high court of heaven. And it may seem a risky thing to cast yourself into the very hands of the holy God you have offended. But in taking that risk, there is a deep, eternal, lasting cleansing that is guaranteed for you in the blood of Jesus painted on the doorposts of your soul. Let's pray together. Father, we seem to think that repentance is something we do once when we first trust in Christ and then maybe put it away. There are almost certainly things that need to be repented of in the hearts and lives of your people here. Activities, thoughts, habits, temptations that have been entertained, excused, cleaned up, allowed to sit in the front room of our lives as if they were respectable guests when they actually are demons to destroy us. Father, teach us the misery of our sin so that it would drive us like David to fall at your feet and say, be merciful to me. Oh my God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.